Artists' Creed. I'm Steve Guthrie, Professor of Theology and the Arts at Belmont University in Nashville, Tennessee. The Artists' Creed is a conversation about Christianity, creativity, and the arts. And the venue we've chosen for that conversation is the Apostles' Creed, an expression of the Christian faith with roots in the worship and proclamation of the early church. center of the Christian faith is the claim that in Jesus Christ, the Word of God has been made flesh. This claim is also at the center of the creed, both figuratively and literally. There's layer upon layer of paradox in this affirmation. On the one hand, we want to say that the Incarnation is the pinnacle of God's plan for the created world. It's the high point of salvation history. So here, in Jesus Christ, we see the glory of God most clearly. It's here that the mercy and wisdom and justice and love of God is focused into one brilliant point. And yet, at the same time, the Incarnation represents a kind of humbling of God, a restraint and a limitation. Here, God surrenders himself to gravity, to hunger and thirst— to the limits of time and place, and ultimately to the cruelty and injustice of human executioners. Before the Incarnation, the Word of God transcends human culture and physical dimensions. In Jesus, on the other hand, the Word of God speaks this language, lives in this village, stands this height, weighs this many pounds. The Word is made particular. In today's podcast, I talk with author and playwright A.S. Peterson. His experience in theater illuminates many of these same issues of the Word and the Word made flesh. Tell me a little bit about um, the sorts of writing that you've done. We're going to be talking about your writing for theater particularly, but you've done other sorts of writing as well. Yeah. So what, what kinds of things have you written um, in addition to the works we're talking about today? Well, uh, I've written all my life stories mm. in one form or another. Yeah. Uh, but as far as publication goes, my first novel was published in 2009. It's called The Fiddler's Gun. It's a uh, historical novel about a young girl who's an orphan, and she gets wrapped up in the Revolutionary War and eventually becomes a pirate or a privateer. <laughs> and then uh, that's continued in The Fiddler's Green, which... Uh, takes the story across the sea to the Mediterranean where she becomes involved with the Knights of Malta and the Barbary pirates and uh, finally winds that all to a close at the end of the Revolutionary War. So those are my first two books. Uh, But since then, I've uh, written a number of short stories, um, Uh uh, some for anthologies, some are published uh, Mm -hmm. as their own little mini novellas. And then, uh, you know, I've done some poetry here and there. I don't claim to be a great poet, but I have tried. Uh-huh. <clears throat> and then most recently, uh, I've gotten into theater work. Yeah. Yeah. So that is something that came later. Is that right? Right. I did not foresee that. I actually went to college uh, as a film student. So I always really? envisioned envis- okay. myself uh, writing for the screen. Um, and then eventually got kind of disillusioned with that um, whole aspect of, of writing uh, but it was good preparation for writing for theater. Yeah. Well, yeah, and that's so. interesting, too, that um, that you s- kind of started in that direction, but then became disillusioned with it. What about screenwriting right. disillusioned you? 
Well, it was uh, it wasn't so much about the screenwriting as it was about the business. The of business, film. okay. Like it's such a big money business that it it just takes a million years to get anywhere, and you got to just. Yeah, I'd never like, heard that about the movies. But, uh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, well, it's like if you want to be a screenwriter, like. You know, I just read so many books about how mm. you just need to write script after script after script after script. And if you're lucky, you know, after 50 of them, one might get picked up and yeah. produced by somebody. And that's just not the kind of rejection I was prepared for. <laughs> <laughs> you know, if you're like psychologically strong, yeah, for the, just strong like, enough to. Well, I put a lot of emotional energy oh, into yeah. a story, you know, and, and, it's you know, I guess some people are more. Uh, I guess practical about it. You can yeah. just bang out a story right. that is, you know, a cohesive whole and then shop it around and see what happens. And I'm just not built that way. Yeah. Like when I write something, I care a lot about it. Kayam Potok yeah. and uh, Asher Lev. The, my name is Asher Lev. He says, like, um, an artist is somebody who has a particular scream that is trying to get out into the yeah. world. And like, that's how I feel about all, everything that I write. Like, yeah. I mean, that, maybe it's not so dramatic as a scream, uh-huh. but it is definitely <laughs> my way of saying, this is what my heart looks like, Yeah, you know? And so it's not something that I was willing to just do as a business. If right. It makes sense. It does make sense. Yeah. So, um, how did the opportunities to write for the stage come about then? Yeah. How did you get interested in doing that? Well, uh, a friend of mine here in town, uh, Matt Logan, is uh, okay. uh, the director at Studio 10 Theater yeah. Company. And they had a project come up. They wanted to uh, they wanted to write an original uh, stage adaptation of The Battle of Franklin. Hmm. Uh, and if you're like me and never paid too much attention to Franklin... Uh, you, you've probably driven around town and seen signs for the Carter House. Hmm. And uh, always, I always thought, oh, that must have been where uh, June Carter was born, you right. know, okay. Johnny Cash's wife. Yeah. And it turns out that's not true okay. at all. <laughs> it's actually a Civil War uh, uh, historical place that's huh. got an incredible story behind wow. it. And so they, they commissioned me uh, to write it based on having read my novels and just yeah. kind of knew me uh, and – took a big risk on me honestly hmm. because i'd never written for the stage before yeah and so i you know maybe unwisely said yes i'll do that yeah uh because i always say yes to good opportunities if i can yeah and uh immediately decided that i had made a terrible decision uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> because I, I think i said yes in like june and it was going to premiere in august oh my goodness or, or september like it was a really quick turnaround yeah and I thought, oh, that'll be easy, and uh-huh. it wasn't easy. And no. it was—it's a musical too. And we didn't have the—we had a songwriter at the beginning of the process who dropped out. Wow! And then it actually uh, two weeks before opening, we still didn't have songs. Oh my goodness! So we ended up—we had a brilliant songwriter named Patrick uh, Thomas uh, come in and just bang out some songs that were brilliant. And I couldn't believe he did it that yeah. quickly. Anyway, so it opened and it was a—you know—sold out every show. I think. Yeah, it was a uh, it was really well received. So that yeah. was how I got into that, and since then they've asked me to do a, some other things, and I just it's a process that I love, yeah. and I'll do it as long as people keep asking uh-huh. me. Uh-huh. Well, talk a little bit about the difference between um, writing a novel or writing a story, mm-hmm. and um, the process of writing uh, a play or something that's going to be performed before an audience. Yeah. Well. Um, they are very different processes. Huh. Uh, writing a novel, uh, 
as a novelist, I'm in complete control of everything. Like I can yeah. fine tune <clears throat> that scene, that paragraph, that sentence mm. until it lands exactly like I want it to mm. on the on the audience's ear. Um, and, you know, I get to shape the entire emotional experience that way, yeah. and nobody can tell me different. Yes, there are editorial decisions involved, but in general, it's just me. Yeah. Um, and you know, which means that at the end of the day, I'm to blame for everything, uh -huh. and I, you know, I get to claim responsibility for everything too. And as somebody who's likes to be in control, that's great. Yeah. Um, uh, working in theater is entirely different. Uh, you know, when I, I finished the first draft of the Battle of Franklin, for instance. And uh, took it to the director, and I was like, "All right, I got it. I've nailed this thing." Hmm. You know, we sat down and, and read it with a with a cast, did a table read, and uh, at the end of it, I was just like, "Oh my gosh, everything's awful. <laughs> what yeah. have I done?" Like, <laughs> yeah, you know, it's all falling apart uh, because you know the the final form of a play is not its printed form. The final form of a play is what happens in front of an audience, yeah. which is very different from how it works in a book. Yeah, uh, and so. That means that you don't really understand what it is that you have until you've heard it read out loud in three dimensions. Right. Um, and even if it's just a table read, just hearing the voices come from different sides of the table yeah. and how people are interacting inform like how the pace uh, is developing yeah. and, and you know where the tone is wrong and where it comes off funny when it shouldn't and all those mm -hmm. kind of things. And so the result is it's, it's a really collaborative process. Yeah. Which as an author who has typically written in complete solitude, yeah. turns out to be a lot of fun. Yeah. Um, I am not, I've got really thick skin. I uh -huh. like for people to tell me what's wrong with what I do. Yeah. And uh, so I think that uh, the result is that when I sit down, you know, at a, with a table of actors and talk through what they just read and what was wrong with it, like I'm not <laughs> bristling at that. Like I'm like, oh yeah, give it to me because I want this to be as good as it can be. Yeah. And, uh, and it's especially exciting when, when you, when you sit down with the actors who are going to eventually play those parts yeah. and understand how they handle sentences and how they handle emotions, mm. and then you can actually begin to tailor their part to their strengths, yeah. which is a lot of fun. Uh, so it's a great process. And then the best part of it is that you know when you write a novel and you publish it, you know, release day comes around and you release it out into the world and you are met with this <laughs> deafening silence, yeah. you know, because yeah. uh, nobody reads the book and then immediately that yeah. day tells you, hey, this was great. Right. You don't hear anything. You just you have this horrible anxiety of like, oh, my gosh, does everybody hate it? I don't know what's going on. When you write a play, you go to opening night, yeah. and at the end of the night, even if people didn't like it, they stand up and clap. Yeah. You know, so it's like, oh, yeah, it feels really good emotionally to, to put, put a lid on it like that. I wonder if there is a way in which the, the process of writing for performance pushes back against some of our misunderstandings of the artistic process. I mean, we tend in the modern West to think of artistic creation as a very individual um, undertaking yeah. and as something that's done by kind of solitary figures, yeah. you know, kind of the lone genius who is kind of an iconoclastic figure and right. who, you know, uh, pushes back against society and has this unique vision. Um, but yeah. that's really, I mean, it's not unheard of in the rest of the world, in the rest of history, but it is kind of distinctive to the West to conceive of creativity in such an individualistic yeah. fashion. So I wonder if, you know, if the process of writing for theater kind of exposes some of those. I mean, there's a way in which even the author alone in his study 
is accompanied by other voices, right? Right. I think it's totally true. Somebody told me at one point during the rehearsal of either Battle of Franklin or Frankenstein, they said, uh, I, I guess it's some quote by some you know famous playwright, but musical theater is the, like the most complex art form hmm. because it requires the individual artistic crafts of like 19 different disciplines. Oh, wow. And I can't list all those. I, yeah. I, I probably got the quote wrong. Yeah. But it is true. Like you have your set designer, you have your costume designer, yeah. your choreographer, your songwriter, your individual singers, your actors, your playwright, your director, yeah. your lighting, your sound design. Like that's 10 I just listed off without even thinking yeah, about totally. it. And each one of those things are in very individual artistic process yeah which i should also say makes it um the the process of theater from from the perspective of the writer is sort of terrifying yeah because by the time we get to rehearsal i've already put in untold months of work yes on this and i love it you know i feel like i've got it it's it's perfect it's not perfect yeah i feel like it's perfect at that point and then we sit down and we give it to all these other people to start, you know, inhabiting these mm. roles and incarnating this piece of uh, art. And they're at the beginning of their process. So just like I went through all the bad first drafts and yeah. all the collaboration and all the wrestling that got it to this final product, they've still got to do that. Yeah. And so it's hard for me to sit down on the first day of rehearsal and see an actor muck it all up. Mm-hmm. And I just want to reach out and say, no, do it this way. Yeah. But that's not my job. Uh, and the director's job is to let him have that leeway to explore his own artistic expression yeah. and trust that by the time we reach opening night, there, he's going to have found the best possible outworking of that process, yeah. which is scary. Yeah, <laughs> It's really scary. And miraculously, you know, it's in my case, it's worked. Yeah. It doesn't always work, I'm sure. But, yeah. you know, and then even after opening night, it continues to evolve. You know, I, I tell people, don't go see a play on opening night. I guess the worst time to go. Everybody's nervous. Nobody knows what's going to happen. Right. And, uh, you know, honestly, nobody knows if this is the best version of the play yet. Yeah. You know, but you go on closing night, and everybody's got their beats down. Uh, yeah. The tweaks have been made, and hopefully, like, that's going to be the, like, ultimate performance of that show yeah. is on closing night. It occurs to me that there might even be two different kinds of artistic excellence, the supreme individual statement and then the collaborative statement. Before you came, you know, we recorded another session this morning, and then I was talking with the woman who's working at the front desk here in, in the recording studio, and she asked how it went, um, and if it went the way I thought it would. And I said, well, those are two different questions. I think it went really well. Right. And it didn't go at all the way that I thought it would. Right. And one of the first interviews that I did, um, not for this podcast, but for something else some years ago, I realized uh, kind of halfway into the process that I either have to decide, do I want this to go a particular way or do I want to have a conversation? Right. You know? Yeah. Um, And it occurs to me that you could be a dictatorial playwright. Right. And come in and say, this is exactly how you're going to say this. And it, and it yeah. might even be that that would turn out really well, like yeah. as one kind of right. excellence. But you'll but make it, enemies. Right, you'll, yeah. make enemies. <laughs> you'll never write another right. thing. You'll never work in this town again. Um, but that that's a different kind of thing than... Um, than allowing each person to have their voice, yeah. you know? Yeah, I'm a fan of trusting the process. Yeah. I mean, but that also relies on trusting that you're working with people who are good at what they do. Yeah. You know, which is, you know, 
it involves a lot of people. Not everybody's going to be the best at what they do, but you just kind of trust that the whole is going to be greater than some of its parts. Yeah. And in my experience, that's been totally true. And it's been really satisfying. Huh. Yeah. Um, yeah. And for what it's worth, uh, both of the plays that I've written that have been produced have been, the end product has been far better than I could have made them alone. Yeah. Like things have come out in the rehearsal and the workshopping process that uh, I didn't see coming. Yeah. You know, there have been scene changes and various things that have happened that hmm. I would have said absolutely no to yeah. just sitting and looking at the script. Yeah. But then when we see what happens when actors are actually in front of you, it's yeah. like, oh, man, that actually works really well. We're going to change it to fit that. Yeah. And even if that means we got to rework another scene just so we can get to this point, that's worth it. Mm-hmm. And that's a super satisfying process because I don't want to be I don't want to be able to claim that this is just my play and that I'm responsible right. for everything. It's so much more fun to be able to say, "Oh, give them all the credit." Yeah, you know, yeah, I had a part in it, but we did this. Right. I think that's a much more healthy thing than I did this. Right. You know, and even but, with somebody like Andrew Lloyd Webber, who yes wrote the music and the words and all this kind of stuff. Yeah. He didn't do it alone. Sure. Like, there's a untold numbers of people involved in that process right. that uh, ultimately led to those successes. Right. Well, you just mentioned now that, um, you know, the, the work, the play, the musical becomes something different in, in the process of rehearsing it and staging it. And earlier, before we got started, you, were, you used the phrase... Um, Incarnation, where you talked about kind of the the incarnation of of the work. Mm-hmm. Maybe you could read um, the excerpt from uh, Frankenstein that we were looking at mm-hmm. earlier, and tell us a little bit about how it makes a difference for that bit of text to be right. embodied. Yeah, I'd be happy to. There's so there's uh, one of the magical things about theater to me is the way that. Um, Unlike with a novel, the the words are the final uh, embodiment of that work of art. With theater, the words still have to be incarnated. They have to be given flesh and blood and uh, three dimensions in order to fully realize uh, the script that's been written. And so it's always interesting to me that as the playwright, when I'm writing, I have very specific things in my mind. Like I, I know where people are on the stage. And I, I see these spatial interactions uh, in a very specific way, which may or may not end up actually in the play. You know, part of that's because it's not my job as a writer to put in such dense stage directions that everything is orchestrated. Mm-hmm. Like, that's the director's job. It's not my job. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to read a short piece from my adaptation of Frankenstein that I think really illustrates how that played out in, in the real world. Can you do it with funny voices or like accents? Or <laughs> I something? could, but you would, you would regret it. It would be terrible. Um, but essentially, this is a point in the play when uh, Victor Frankenstein and his betrothed, who's named Elizabeth, have uh, just had a huge argument, and um, they've agreed that they're still going to get married, but essentially the relationship is over. It's mm. a lifeless. Um, it's a lifeless relationship, mm. and uh, so Elizabeth proceeds uh, to. With, with her uncle. He, he's her uncle, but he's about to become her father once she's married. Mm-hmm. Uh, so she, she and he together are going through wedding preparations. And at the same time, Victor is on stage and he has promised the monster that he will create a, a bride for the monster. Mm-hmm. So at the same time, Victor is sewing together you know, his new creation. 
Victor turns on the nearly finished bride on the table. Accursed work, surely I am wedded to misery. And the monster's voice answers from the shadows. Finish your work, Frankenstein, and I will quit you forever. Then let us to it. Victor goes to work at the table. As he does so, Alphonse and Elizabeth make wedding preparations. As Elizabeth is made ready, so is the bride. Alphonse, the uncle, says, The wedding will be in the old church. It is the very place I was wed and my parents before me. Yes, uncle. You must call me father now. I shall call you daughter. The days are few before it shall be lawfully so. Yes, father. We must summon the dressmaker. I will spare no expense. Yes, father. The dressmaker enters. Sew for her a gown of purest white. My Elizabeth will be made to shine like a jewel. It shall be my finest work. You must be exquisite. Yes, father. So this repetition of the yes, father keeps going mm-hmm. on, reinforcing like her kind of lifeless commitment to this mm-hmm. uh, marriage. And what is not apparent when you read it is that on stage in three dimensions behind her, as she's standing there mm-hmm. being measured and, uh, you know, enrobed in this gown, and kind of treated like an object by these men around her. Mm. Behind her, Victor has this lifeless body that he's sewing together as the bride for the monster. Mm -hmm. So there's this interesting parallel that's happening. So when you sit down and read that around the table, nobody notices that. Yeah. You know, if you were to sit down and read this uh, just as a book, you probably wouldn't notice those parallels. But then when you stage it, you suddenly see, like, oh, there's this really interesting thing going on spatially. It's like this visual rhyme that's happening yeah. that's elucidating all these different motivations and things that are happening in the characters' lives. And people are like, oh, that's really interesting. Yeah. You know, and, th- and that's what I love about theater is that it's spatial, you know, and you can't see those things when you just read it. Yeah. Or you can, but it's, it's much more difficult. And so what's fascinating to me about that is, like, once I started seeing these things happen in my experience with theater, I started drawing all these theological connections that right. I would never thought about before. And I started thinking, oh, like, um, so like in the Old Testament, you know, hmm. we, we're given the law, which is this, you know, written thing that we are to follow, uh, which is great. You know, it's doing what it's supposed to do. But then when you get down to the New Testament, suddenly you have the Word of God incarnated. And Christ, right. you know, he says, I came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And yeah. so it's like he's this incarnation of the law. And so for the first time in human history, you can walk around the law in three dimensions and see how it actually moves and works in human hmm. space. And I was like, oh, this is fascinating. It's yeah. kind of like the theater writ large, you know, on the cosmic level. Like God has written his, his play and now it's being performed in some in some respects. Yeah. And so, you know, the result of that is that, you know, the, the, the apostles, you know, they saw the word of God in flesh and understood it in a way that nobody before and nobody since yeah. has, you know. Yeah. We can read about it. We have their testaments. But that's the same kind of what as, as reading a play. It's kind of the same thing. Like, we're only getting part of the picture because we can't see it in three dimensions. Right. Anyway, so that just sends fireworks off in my brain uh-huh. <laughs> theologically, you know, as I'm thinking, oh, man. So, like, you know, if they were here, like, and to tell us about having just seen the play, you know, they would just be like, oh, man, you wouldn't believe he did this and he did that. And they understand that thing in a way that we have trouble with. Yeah. Because we can't be there to see what it, how it operates in three dimensions, and you know it's you know it's much fuller than that that yeah. th- that metaphor, but uh, it's a new way of thinking about the incarnation that I had never really played with before. Yeah, it it occurs to me too that there's I don't know 
um, as I'm thinking about it, one of the problems that theologians have mused over is the extent to which the incarnate one can contain the eternal word. <laughs> so can yeah. the eternal word of God that uh, there's a, a th- a Latin phrase, can the finite contain the infinite? Um, so theologians have also talked about there being a kenosis, an emptying of the word that has to take place in order for the eternal word of God, for God himself to be made flesh, that there has to be a kind of being made small. Well, it just occurs to me that that's interesting. Like, both things are happening, right? Like, yeah. God is being made small in some form. Yeah. And yet, uh, our experience of God is being greatly enlarged. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's absolutely right. Well, and it occurs to me, too, that in a similar way with the theater, while the words are just on the page, they are infinitely realizable you know so right. you stage them that way right and then until they are staged they the are potentially stageable in a million different right. ways right, right? Yeah. so there's a sense in which the the disembodied word is larger but it's not experienceable right, right. Yeah? yeah so it's still it r- remains possibilities that aren't aren't realized that aren't made accessible to our sense or it also occurs to me like this may go off the rails here i don't know but because i'm just having this thought but while it's still in word form it is realizable in an infinite number of ways yeah by individual people many of which may be right or wrong Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. um and so until the author says this is the way it should look yeah we maybe don't necessarily understand that full incarnation of the law that's good no i like that a lot there's um a great theologian uh writing still today kevin van hooser um who has written a lot about he has a book called uh, the drama of doctrine and uh an essay called the voice and the actor and that um you know christians especially evangelical Christians, which is the tradition that that he's in, you know, have emphasized the importance of kind of right propositions. Mm -hmm. So in the same way, you might say that what is, what is your play Frankenstein? It, it, you wouldn't want to say that it's less than the words on the page. Right. Um, But yet those words are stage directions, which is what, what Van Hooser says, kind of doctrine or theology is meant to be. Right. If it's, you yeah, know, it's, yeah. it's meant to be stage directions, but then it, it has to be lived. And that there, there are right and wrong ways. There are better and less good ways right. of acting it out. Yeah. And in the same way, I mean, you mentioned Paul and, you know, the other apostles, um, how they got to see the performance right. of the word. And then, and I was thinking, oh, I, w- I wish I could have seen the performance. <laughs> no, I, but I like to make the joke that, like, they got to see the performance, and now they've written their reviews, and that's all we have to go <laughs> off of. But we're waiting on the revival. <laughs> yeah, that's good. Well, and I think that's right. I think the other the other way you could go with the the metaphor of of acting is that now that we are meant to perform that same script as right. as the body yeah. of Christ then we are meant to perform again 
the script, the word that Christ enacted. Yeah, um, yeah, that's fascinating. And so that um, you know, the word was made flesh in Christ, and now the word is meant to be made flesh again in right. the body, in of, the body Christ, of Christ in in our performance of of that same yeah. script and that same stage direction. Right. Only we've all got our differing interpretations. <laughs> yeah. Currently. Yeah. And will for you know until it's revived. There is a way in which the creative work of the playwright is then is one of making space. Yeah. Of. Um, for improvisation. Yeah, of not sounding your voice so that there will be space for other voices yeah. to sound. Isn't it N.T. Wright that talks about improvisation? Yeah, that's yeah. right. Well, so Wright's illustration that he often uses is um, he talks about um, if there were a group of trained Shakespearean actors who were just profoundly immersed in the work of Shakespeare. And if those actors found uh, a four, four of the five acts of a Shakespeare play that was newly discovered mm-hmm. um, and that they immersed themselves in those four acts, they could faithfully act out a fifth <laughs> act. Yeah, yeah. And so Wright says that's, that's the position that we're in, you know, that right. we occupy this, this act that's being written or is unwritten. And uh, Yeah, that's fascinating to think about. And complicated yeah because <laughs> there's nobody to tell us yet whether we've gotten it right or wrong <laughs> <laughs> yeah there's a kind of irony in um this conversation that you said you've written all your life and you started off before you wrote plays as a novelist and so implicitly you know you're somebody who believes in the power of the word Um, so does the experience of theater diminish at all your belief in the power of the word or does it modify that or does it, you know, put some new tweak on that? Is the word, cause you know, is the word not powerful enough on its own apart from, (laughs) you know, uh, the stage set of the scenery, the costumes, right. the voices, the... Well, I think the particular difference is that in in the form of a novel, uh, the incarnation that happens is in the imagination of the reader. Mm. So you're providing a, a particular set of stage directions mm. to construct something in the reader's mind to help you communicate what you're trying to get across. Yeah. Whereas in the form of a play, you're providing stage directions to another group of people yeah. Who are going to provide the image for the viewer? Yeah. So there's not like, there's not necessarily there is imagination that the audience brings to the stage, right? Because yeah. you know it doesn't look like Frankenstein's laboratory. Right. You know, we we know that's the same actress playing these three parts. You right. know, so there's there's imagination involved, uh, but the specific images and interrelationships are being created visually in front of us. Mm. Whereas in the novel, I think we're we're implanting those things directly into the mind. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. So I still v- believe, you know, really firmly in the power of words to right. tell stories. Although even even that, I think it's helpful, too. So should your experience of theater cause us to tweak 
our sort of Christian confidence in the sufficiency of the word, you know, um, huh. and particularly, right. you know, again, kind of in the evangelical tradition, there's so much right. emphasis on the sufficiency and the infallibility and the completeness <laughs> of the word of God. And But the word of God is not the Bible. The word of God is Christ. Yeah. Right. Right. So, you know, um, I know some people will take issue with that statement, but I mean, it is true. Both are true, I think. Yeah. Uh, but what it its effect in me is it, it fills me with a, an incredible sense of wonder and uh, and, and imagination. It, it, it puts, sets my imagination on fire when I think about the particulars of the incarnation, hmm. and it kind of recenters the way I think about uh, the word uh, to not only be about the words on the pages of the book that I can hold in my hand, yeah. but to think about like, oh, how did Christ embody these things? And that kind mm-hmm. of like shifts, I, I feel like in my mind, yeah. the way that I think about the incarnation and the way that uh, I look toward the incarnation to explain the scripture rather right. than the scripture to explain the incarnation, yeah. if that makes sense. It does. And I think yeah. it's very helpful. I mean, it's very, it's um, Karl Barth uh, talked about the three senses of the word of God. So the word of God um, first of all, and primarily, is always Jesus. That right. Jesus is the Word of God preeminently, um, primally, and then there is the written Word of God, right. which is then the kind of the written testimony to the eternal Word of God. And then he talks about the kind of third level is the Word of God preached, so oh, that in right. the in the proclamation of the church, then the scriptures. Can testify. So, if you kind of picture them each yeah. pointing to the others, you know, the proclamation of the scriptures then points to Christ right. and can become the word of God preached. Right. Um, but I, I think it's helpful the way that you've put it that kind of then Jesus ends up being the expo- exposition, the exegesis right. of scripture. That, right. Because you know, Jesus didn't come to tell us about this book. Right. You know, this book exists to tell us about Jesus. Yeah. And I wonder. To what extent we sometimes make that mistake, right? You know, yeah. Even when you read a novel, that you know, it's it, the the words in the novel exist as kind of a sort of stage direction, so that you can act it out on the stage of right. your imagination, right? Yeah. But it's easy for us to forget that um, that reading is um, you know such a ubiquitous activity for us we forget that right for most of human history people first of all encountered stories as something that was acted out or something that was that was heard right right that was spoken aloud right somebody was just telling me that uh augustine yes talked about how it was so weird that people were reading books out loud well he's right yeah well he um he went see uh ambrose his mother was trying his mother monica was uh trying to get her son back to christianity he had wandered away and um augustine was a professor in milan and the bishop of milan was ambrose this very learned man and so she 
told her son, you need to go visit this Ambrose. I think you'll be really impressed with him. And Augustine in his confessions says, I went to see him and he was reading a book and he said, I was astonished that though he was reading, he made no sound, nor did his lips right. move. Yeah, yeah, that's and so fascinating. It absolutely highlights the fact that for the vast stretch of human history, reading was an oral and aural right. event, that yeah. it was you know, a sensual and therefore embodied event. Right. Which also means that that was true of the scriptures. That's absolutely right. Because, you know, by the time Augustine has said this, you know, it's what, 200 years after yeah. the Gospels have been circulating or whatever. Right. So, yeah, it means they've been orally delivered. Which, by the way, my brother-in-law um, is part of it, or is founded a ministry called Living Letters, and what he's an right. actor, he's a New York actor, and what he does is he goes to a church and he delivers, uh, you know, Paul's letters, one of mm. Paul's letters, orally, you know, yeah. as if to, to kind of give a sense to how the first century church uh, might have originally encountered Paul's yeah. letter, and it's fascinating because you hear everything differently yeah. when it's a it's a delivery man on stage saying, "Hey, I've got one from Paul. Here's yeah. what it says," and then he recounts yeah. the whole thing, and it's great. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's both a loss and um, and a gift. What was occurring to me was like you know, so in Islam, um, you know, the Quran can't really be translated. You know, so the that is to say, you know, they, there are translations, but the Quran is only the Quran in the original language. Right. That. that cadence of sounds and rhythms that is what is inspired if you translate it into english it's something other right. than the inspired right. text but from the very beginning the christian scriptures have been and the gospel has been translated both literally in terms right. of translated in into greek and latin and um and so on but also, just culturally, it was translated that it was decided, yeah, we're not going to require Gentiles to become Jews. Right. There's something about that that is like a playwright making space for the actors to perform it, you know? Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. So that yeah. it, we, it does sound different when I say it than when Paul said it. And that's okay. That's God right. kind of if making space. If it's well written, space. then it's going to work either way, right? Yeah. Yeah. Which is like, I'm constant, like, I'm in the middle of reading the Brothers Karamazov right now. Yeah. Which I just am head over heels in love with. Huh. And I'm constantly baffled that something that complex and beautiful can be translated. Because, yeah. like, as a writer, like, words are important. Like, yeah. word choice is important. And uh, so I think it's a testament to the greatness of a story if it can withstand translation, <laughs> yeah. you know, and still be great. And, and you know, the scripture is prime example of that. Yeah. You know, it's been translated for thousands of years into every language that, you know, you can name and it still manages to, to be itself. So, like, what what preserves the message or the word of God amidst all of that act of retranslating and reperforming. And um, I think that's the kind of the role of the Holy Spirit. Um, so that want to say that there is a sense in which, um, you know, the, the author of the words continues to inhabit the words. So, right. you know, uh, the reformers, alongside talking about um, the Holy Spirit inspiring Scripture, talked about the Holy Spirit having to illuminate 
scripture. So um, in a lot of Reformed services, there's a prayer of illumination Mm. that happens before the sermon. Mm -hmm. But the idea is that just as much as the Holy Spirit is necessary to produce the scriptures, so the Holy Spirit is necessary for us to hear them right. with with understanding right. or, or to read them, to, to perform them right. in an appropriate way. Um, yeah. And I feel like that's, you know, there's a parallel there with what happens in theater. Yeah. Like as a playwright, I do my best to get everything I need to get into the script, in the script. And then at some point, I have to trust that the process, mm-hmm. which, you know, maybe is... Yeah. analogous to the Spirit, yeah. is going to bear out what I've intended, no matter yeah. how many of the details change. Yeah. I think it's probably the mark of a great play, is that it doesn't matter how poorly it's produced or acted out hmm. um, or designed, that the essential uh, message or the essential story of the play is still communicated to the audience and hopefully still moves the audience. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So maybe that's the Holy Spirit's work. I don't. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I think so. Well, what what do you have on the horizon in terms of your writing? Well, uh, I just got back from Europe, where I was doing research for an ad- a stage adaptation of Corey Ten Boom's The Hiding Place. Oh my goodness. Yeah. So we spent a, uh, about a week in Amsterdam and Harlem. There, I got to go to her house and yeah, uh, you know, kind of get to know that community. And then uh, we traveled across Germany to go to Ravensbrück concentration camp where mm. she and Betsy were held wow. and where Betsy died. Um, wow. And it was, uh, it was great. I, I was, I was really, really lucky that we could uh, manage that. And, uh, and I'm glad that we did it because I could have adapted the book without having gone, mm. but having gone, I, it's really informed things in ways that I hadn't foreseen. Yeah. I, uh, especially having gone to uh, the concentration camp, you know, and stood in front of the 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 oven where wow. Betsy Ten Boom, you know, passed into the fire. Wow! Like that's a really powerful, oh my emotional thing. Yeah. And I've often des- described people uh, the experience of going to a concentration camp is kind of like the negative of going to the Grand Canyon mm. and that, you know, we've all seen pictures of the Grand Canyon our whole lives. Yeah. But when you go and you step up to the rim yeah. and it envelops you, yeah. you're like left breathless with just the size of it. You're like, mm. oh, oh, now I understand. Yeah. And going to a concentration camp was the same way. It was like, I thought I knew all about it. And then you go and you spend a few hours taking in the full depth of the depravity and the despair yeah. and suffering and evil that happened and you just understand it in a whole new way yeah and so i'm excited about how that's going to inform the play yeah that's why i'm reading the brothers karamazov right now wow. just to kind of wrestle with some problems of suffering yeah and i got several other books i want to finish off before the end of the year and then yeah. i'm gonna start writing yeah january 1st premieres in houston in september wonderful congratulations so, thanks i hope it, we'll have to. hope it turns out <laughs> yeah we'll have to have you um come back next season and sure talk about that yeah and it occurs to me too i mean you said you could have written it without going to the places but so you had to have those things incarnated yeah i needed to in see your the presence incarnation before, yeah. yeah before yeah. you could incarnate it for someone else yeah and i'll say that the 
um, the Battle of Franklin was the same way. Hmm. Like I, I, you know, did my research and kind of knew the story. Yeah. But then when I went to the Carter House and yeah. and went through the tour, and you go down into the basement where these people hid yeah. during like unbelievable violence happening yeah. outside, uh, and you really can imagine, like then you understand things in a whole new way. And, yeah. Yeah. It just goes right back to the, what we've been talking about. Yeah. Yeah. So. The Apostles had a good show. (laughs) In this episode, we've been talking about the Word made flesh, and I'm going to end with a short reading from Karl Barth's Dogmatics and Outline. This is from Chapter 10, Jesus Christ, um, and beginning on page 67. Everything that deserves to be called knowledge in the Christian sense lives from the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Also, from the standpoint of the first article, it is something quite new when we say, I believe in Jesus Christ. God, the creator of heaven and earth, the eternal God, in his loftiness and hiddenness, in his inconceivability, which transcends the inconceivability of the heavenly reality, is confessed in the first article. And now, here in the second article, the apparently contradictory At all events, the quite new thing is confessed, which for the first time makes clear and illustrates the loftiness and inconceivability of God in the first article, and at the same time confronts us with a tremendous riddle, that God has form. A name sounds forth. A man stands before us in God's place. Here the Almighty appears not Almighty at all. We were told of God's eternity and omnipresence. Now we are told of a here and now, of a happening on a small scale in the midst of human history, of a story at the beginning of our era, at a definite place on our earth. In the first article we were told about God the Father, and now, from the unity of the Godhead, God himself comes forth in the form of the Son. Now God is this other in God and proceeding from God the creator who is distinguished from all that is, and the creature as the essence of all being, which is different from the being of God, are described in the first article. And now the second article says that the creator himself became a creature. He, the eternal God, became not creation in its totality, but one creature. The Artist's Creed is hosted by the Rabbit Room Podcast Network in cooperation with the College of Theology and Christian Ministry at Belmont University in Nashville, Tennessee. Belmont University is a student-centered Christian community providing an academically challenging education that empowers men and women of diverse backgrounds to engage and transform the world with disciplined intelligence, compassion, courage, and faith. Belmont offers dozens of engaging and innovative programs, including a major in religion and the arts. Find out more at belmont.edu slash theology. Significant support, including generous access to recording facilities, has also been provided by Lipscomb University. Learn more at lipscomb.edu. This podcast is brought to you by The Rabbit Room, a 501c3 nonprofit dedicated to fostering Christ-centered community and spiritual formation through music, story, and art. All our podcasts are made possible by the generous support of our members. To learn more about us, visit rabbitroom.com. And to become a member, rabbitroom.com slash donate.